Welcome to the She Built This podcast, where we are sharing the stories of professionals and entrepreneurs who are on a mission to create the new norm by following their dreams and making them a reality. I'm your host, Emily Aborn, and together we are inspiring, growing, and giving you the tools you need to bring ideas to life so you can build whatever this means for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Happy September. I know I really kind of like let that intro music drag out a little longer than usual, didn't I? All right, so I kind of want to start today's podcast by just taking a deep inhale and exhale together because I don't know about you, but holy smokes, August flew by. And honestly, it was like probably my favorite month of this entire year so far, both personally and professionally. It all sort of kicked off actually on July 30th when my husband's family came into town and then it's just really taken off with uh, great things from there. I got to see family and friends that I haven't seen since the beginning, well, let's see if I can actually make words, beginning of the pandemic and then some. And I also streamlined some of my offers in my own business and like my business operations. It's just been really going great. Um, I've met like tons of new people. And I'm going to admit that after all that, it's feeling a little bit swirly right now. But I did follow my own advice from last week's podcast when I started to feel overwhelmed on Thursday. And I closed my computer down, I stepped away and I went for a swim because it was scorching hot. And when I came back, I did like this massive brain dump. And then I put one foot in front of the other and I started to get to work piece by piece. Now, did it get me completely where I would like to be, like magically ahead and on track? Not exactly. Um, We're actually going away for quite a lengthy period of time for the like kind of last hurrah of the summer, but it's helped me to put a plan in place. And I have so much excitement for the month of September that I think I'm going to be all good. But I'll tell you what, if I do need an SOS, you guys will be the first to know. So If you're feeling a little bit swirly yourself, um, it's totally normal right now. Things are changing and transitioning and shifting, and there's just kind of a lot happening. Um, So I'll say that this is also a great opportunity for us to start creating new routines, getting back into routines, and just really taking time to envision and dream about what we want for the rest of the year and, and also going forward. I'm also kind of feeling like even as an adult, a little bit of the back to school vibes and I'm feeling like uh, more drawn to my notebook again. And I just, so that's kind of all, all that together has me, uh, focused on a a theme this month, and that is writing. So on the podcast, I'm going to be interviewing some authors. We'll be looking at the actual writing process itself for various people. We're going to talk to a first-time author, um, someone introducing a totally new approach to writing. And I'll also be interviewing someone who's going to be talking about ethical copywriting for our websites and content and things like that. Even if you are not, you know, even if you don't identify yourself as a writer, there's going to be a lot of good stuff in here. And it also pertains in some of these episodes to listening. So I think you're going to like it. Um, It's very exciting stuff. And in case we haven't met, if you're new here, I don't know how I could be so rude. I completely forgot to introduce myself properly. I'm Emily Aborn. I'm a content writer and I'm the owner and founder of She Built This, a woman's entrepreneurship community 
this is like the most authentic bunch of people and we are all like really committed to being by each other's side every single step of the way as we build our businesses. Just in case this is your first time listening, quickly a little bit more about She Built This. Tangibly, it's a large online free Facebook group with over 1,400 women globally. And we also have a cozy knit VIP community, which has like extra member perks and offers workshops and accountability opportunities and extra opportunities for uh, visibility. And we just make business really fun by doing it all together. So if you're not a VIP yet or and you're intrigued or you want to know more about the free group, just go to shebuiltthis.org you can always drop me a line and I'm always happy to talk about it. It's one of the things I am most passionate about, in fact. Um, All right, so this week's shout out of the week is not a reviewer, but it's just kind of a funny story. I was at a local networking event last week for the Chamber of Commerce, which was co-sponsored by Coho in Milford, New Hampshire. And someone came up to me and said that she listens to my podcast on a regular basis and it just made me feel so good and happy inside. So shout out to Shelly, for making my day last week. And I do have one last thing. This is a question for audience participation. I want to know where and when you listen to your podcast right now. I listen to mine on walks, in the shower, and while cleaning my house. And that was another fun piece of the conversation with Shelly. We all had a good laugh over dinner about it. So share away if you dare. Okay, and without further ado, I'm going to tell you about today's guest, Cy Montgomery. Now, people have been telling me about Cy for years. In fact, as I was reading her book, I realized we've probably crossed paths before. Uh, We go to the same vet, and one of her dear friends is the mother of somebody that I used to work for about 10, 11 years ago. And there were just tons of other little synchronicities in the book I read, which was How to Be a Good Creature. That was the one I started with. I added two more to my list immediately after our conversation, and I was so not disappointed in reading this book. I'm not even going to be able to do side justice by telling you about her nor reading her bio. You need to pick up one of her books and read them for yourself. So this woman is incredible. She's written 31 books, but actually I think it's 32 now. But listen to this. She's not just an author. She's been chased by an angry silverback gorilla in Rwanda, hunted by a tiger in India, swum with piranhas, electric eels, and pink dolphins in researching articles, films, and books for adults and children. She's a nationally best-selling author who lives in New Hampshire with her husband writer, Howard Mansfield, their border collie, Thurber, and their flock of free-range laying hens. Her work has taken her from the forest of Papua New Guinea to the Altai Mountains of the Gobi Desert. For The Soul of an Octopus, which is a National Book Award finalist, she befriended octopuses at the New England Aquarium and scuba dived and snorkeled with wild octopuses in Mexico and French Polynesia. Next, of course, she drew on her scuba skills to cage dive with great white sharks. Like I said, I can't do her justice. Her bio can't do her justice. So let's just bring her on. Here's my conversation with Cy Montgomery. Hello, Cy, and welcome to the She Built This podcast. Oh, I'm thrilled to be on. I am so excited to have you. For the listeners, Cy and I have like crossed paths many times before probably and not known it. So now this is just a serendipitous moment where I get to have her on my podcast for our month of writing and authors, and I'm really, really excited. 
Um, so to start, I actually wanted Sai to read an excerpt from her book, How to Be a Good Creature. So I'm going to let you take that away. Thank you, Emily. Well, I'm actually reading from chapter one, page one. It's a chapter called Molly. As usual, when I was not in class in elementary school, we were together. Molly, our Scottish terrier, and I were doing sentinel duty on the spacious crew-cut lawn of the General's House, quarters 225, Fort Hamilton, Brooklyn, New York. Rather, Molly was keeping a watch, and I was watching her. Unfortunately for a Scotty, bred to hunt down foxes and badgers, far too little prey was to be found on the orderly and efficient army base. Every inch was strictly manicured, and wild animals were not tolerated. Still, because Molly did find the occasional squirrel to chase, and because, though we lived there, the home was not ours but the U.S. Army's and we couldn't put up a fence, she was chained to a nearby sturdy corkscrewing stake driven deep into the ground. I watched her scan the area with her wet black nose and her pricked swiveling ears, longing, longing as I did daily, to smell and hear, as she did, the invisible comings and goings of distant animals. And then she was off like a furry cannonball. In an instant, she had ripped the foot-and-a-half-long stake from the ground and was dragging it and her chain behind her as she charged, snarling with gleeful fury, through the yew bushes in front of the single-story brick house. Quickly, I glimpsed what she was chasing. A rabbit! I leapt to my feet. I'd never seen a wild rabbit before. Nobody had ever heard of a wild rabbit on Fort Hamilton. I wanted a closer look. But Molly had chased the rabbit around to the front of the house, and my two weak second graders' feet, imprisoned in their patent leather Mary Janes, couldn't carry me nearly as fast as her four clawed, fully mature paws. A Scottish terrier's fierce, deep voice is too commanding to be ignored. So soon from out of our quarters came my mother and one of the enlisted men who had been assigned to help keep the general's house tidy. A forest of legs exploded around me as the adults zigzagged after our furious terrier. But, of course, they couldn't catch her. By this time, Molly had broken free of the chain and left the stake far behind. There was no stopping her. Whether she caught the rabbit or not, she'd be out for hours, perhaps till after dark. She'd come back, signaling at the door to be let in with a single summoning wolf but only when she was good and ready. Though I wished I could have run after her, it wouldn't have been to stop her. I wanted to go with her. I wanted to see the rabbit again. I wanted to learn the smells around the post at night. I wanted to meet other dogs and wrestle and chase them, to poke my nose into holes and smell who lived there, to discover treasures hidden in the dirt. Many young girls worship their older sisters. I was no exception, but my older sister was a dog, and I, standing there helplessly in the frilly dress and lacy socks in which my mother had dressed me, wanted to be just like her, fierce, feral, unstoppable. Oh my gosh, I love it. So I love the personality of uh, Molly and I love 
all the personality that you put throughout the book of or just really capturing each of the characters in your book. Um, there's if for those who haven't read it yet, you need to. Um, there's Christopher Pig. There, there's Emus. There's a tarantula. There's Octavia the octopus, and they're all full of these perspectives and personality, just like Molly. So, Sai, to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your childhood and growing up, and how that played a role in your decision to write books, and especially the books you do. Well, animals were always my best friends. In fact, I, I think most of us are born loving animals. I certainly was. There's a story that uh, my parents told me because I was too young to remember, but apparently before I could speak, but I could walk, they took me to the Frankfurt Zoo. I was born in Germany on an army base there. And um, my parents felt me slip from their hands. And when they looked up, to find where I was, I was standing inside the hippo pen at the Frankfurt Zoo. And I was completely unperturbed, as was the hippo. So I've never feared animals. I've always been drawn to them. And growing up, as soon as I could actually tell my parents what was truly in my heart, I informed them that I was not a little girl, but I was actually a horse. Well, my mother went to the pediatrician distraught, and he assured her that this would pass. And it did when I realized I was actually a dog. So I never wanted to be a little girl. I always wanted to, to know what it was like to be an animal. And when Molly arrived, um, she was a pup and I was a pup, but she became a fully mature adult much sooner than I did. Mm. And my desire was to follow her into the wild world and learn some of what she knew. And that is, in fact, what I have done with my life. Yeah. So how did that, like, t kind of tell us the story of how that paired into needing to write these things? Because it's one thing to observe them and feel them and want to interact with them. Uh, but how did you know, okay, I'm also a writer? Well, when I began to read, my father would always read with me articles from the newspaper because in the morning when, when we were stationed in uh, Fort Hamilton, he would read the New York Times. Okay, so I was born in 1958. When I'm starting to read, it's now the 1960s. He would naturally read me and help me read stories about animals because that's what interested me. And in the 1960s, all the stories about animals almost all anyway, were about animals that were going extinct. Hmm. They were about elephants who were being shot into oblivion for their ivory. They were about whales who were being hunted and who were dying because of pollution in the seas. Even our own national emblem, bald eagles, were threatened with extinction because of our use of DDT. And even as a small child, I realized that with these disasters going on, affecting the animals who I loved, maybe the best way I could help them was not as I had imagined as a veterinarian, but as a writer who could bring to the attention of readers across the world the plight of these animals and the value of these animals and that they too think, feel, and know and that their lives have importance and that we should regard them as individuals 
who matter with affection and respect and reverence. And that's what I've done. So tell me about that first, I guess, like, how did you get the first opportunity? Maybe it was your first book. Maybe it was just your first writing gig where that started to, like, those dots started to connect um, tangibly. Well, in high school, uh, my second high school, we moved around a lot. Uh, My second high school, there was a terrific weekly newspaper called The High's Eye. And I immediately joined the staff of the paper and wrote, you know, whatever whatever there was I could write about. And um, the high school did not have a lot of animal news. We were reporting on events in the high school. So I don't remember writing a lot about animals, but I did get experience writing. And I knew that when I went to college that um, one of my majors was going to be journalism, magazine journalism, actually. And my two others were French language and literature and psychology. And I tried to take a fourth one, biology, but they wouldn't let me because I was the first triple major that they had. Uh, I got out of school and started working for a newspaper. And the first year, you just take what you get. And I I covered um, nine rural towns in uh, Huntington County, New Jersey. I wanted to work at this paper in New Jersey because New Jersey had more science and medical writing uh, and environmental writing opportunities than anywhere else. They had more scientists per capita in New Jersey than any other state. And we also had interesting environmental problems to write about. So I worked for the newspaper covering science and medicine after my first year I was promoted and loved doing it. After five years of working, my father, ever my hero, bought me a ticket to go to a place I'd always wanted to go, and that was Australia. I wanted to see the unusual animals that live in Australia, in this island nation. But I didn't just want to see them, and I didn't just want to go on a vacation. I, I wanted to actively learn and contribute and help. So what I did was I joined an organization called Earthwatch, and Earthwatch pairs paying laymen who have just a few weeks a year to volunteer with real scientists working around the world on scientific projects. And the project I joined was called Drought Refugia, studying the southern hairy-nosed wombat in South Australia with Dr. Pamela Parker of Brookfield Zoo. And you lived in tents and you studied wombats who are irresistible. Even though we didn't get to see them up close a lot, I was fascinated with every aspect of their lives, their warrens, you know, their, their scat. Um, any observation I made of the animals was, was thrilling, but you can learn a lot from the edges of an animal's life. And after two weeks of doing this, Dr. Parker, impressed with my passion, told me, you know, I'd love to have you come back. I'd love to pay you to be my assistant. I'd love to give you a ticket to come back, but I don't have the money or budget for any of these things. But if you ever did want to come back and study an animal on your own, you could eat my food and then go to camp. That's a tease right there. (laughs) That's right. So naturally, I went back and quit my job and bought a tent and moved to the Outback. Naturally. (laughs) Yeah. For six months, I lived in the Outback and I ended up studying emus. I had no idea what I was going to study when I showed up, but... Having met these emus, which I describe in the book, these three emus came by one day while initially I was just helping other people with their projects and I was alone um, sampling plants 
for a graduate student, and I looked up for my work, and these three birds, tall as a man, were strolling right by. And I thought, oh my gosh, these are the most magnificent, bizarre creatures I have ever seen. They're flightless birds, but they can run 40 miles an hour across the outback. And uh, I ended up introducing myself to the birds, approaching them with reverence, so they were never afraid of me, wearing the same thing every day. They came to recognize me very quickly, and soon I could just hang out with them and find out what they did all day. And that's what I did for six months. I chronicled what they did. And no one had ever done this before for science. What would you say is the most frightening animal that you've ever come face to face with? And and I say frightening as classically frightening, not necessarily what frightened you, because I know that you've dealt with some poisonous creatures that you don't bat an eye at. So, well, right. I'm scared of a cocktail party, Emily. I'm not afraid of any animal. <laughs> the only animal that ever hurt me was a mosquito that gave me dengue fever when I was in Borneo. But um, I suppose, you know, I've, I've cage dived with great white sharks. A lot of people are frightened of scuba diving it, even if there's not a shark. But if there is a shark, some people are frightened. I, I didn't know for sure that I wouldn't be frightened. I mean, you're there in a cage underwater. Um, and these storied fish are coming by you. But my feeling the minute I saw the first great white was a sense of overwhelming relief. I felt like here comes my knight in white satin, this glorious, shining, mighty, powerful, ancient fish who knows, unlike humans, how to take care of the ocean. And it's glorious that he is coming so near to me. I was not at all afraid. And I also have not been afraid to be near wild tigers, even in the one area of the world where I worked, where tigers routinely swim out after your boat like a dog chases a car, and they get on board and they eat 300 people a year. Oh my goodness. But I mean, that didn't, that just didn't worry me. Again, you know, going to a cocktail party worries me. Um, Well, small talk is awful for the record. it's horrible. Oh, my (laughs) God. All you ever want to say to someone is like, did you know that a blue whale's tongue weighs as much as a school bus? And then they look at you strangely and they move away. I mean, I think that'd be fantastic at a cocktail party, but that's just me. Um, All right. So this kind of leads me to my next question where you talked about the sharks taking better care of the ocean than we do. How do you think that you know, learning about the animal world helps us to be better creatures and better human beings? Well, one, you know, we protect what we love. And once you discover that, you know, great white sharks are not munching their way through humanity, that more people are killed by room fresheners, more people are killed by their toilets, way more people are killed by errors that doctors and nurses make in hospitals than are killed by sharks, but no one wants to kill all the nurses and doctors. So once we realize, you know, that these people are are beautiful and that they are glorious and that they love their lives as we love ours, Mm. then they are going to protect and support these creatures. Okay. So I have to ask kind of a fun question. How do you, um, you have some really exciting names for your pets. (laughs) So how do you pick the names of your pets and the, and, and I guess just the animals in your book? Well, um, it depends. Sometimes they show us their personalities and, uh, Molly was named for me. Uh, Thurber 
uh, who's our border collie, we named uh, but we named him Thurber because, like James Thurber, the cartoonist and essayist, he was blind in one eye. Mm. And James Thurber lost his eye through a, an, an accident involving his little brother in a, in a game of, uh, of William Tell. Thurber was just born that way. But um, we think that, like James Thurber, our Thurber has a wonderful sense of humor. <laughs> That's fun. Um all right, so let's talk about do you have a favorite book that you've that you've written? Oh boy. Well, it depends on what was the the book, you know, that I enjoyed writing the most or what is the book that I enjoyed researching the most or what is the book that I'm proudest of? Um, oh, I guess I don't different. Yeah, okay. Um I guess which what what did you enjoy writing the most and and which one are you most proud of? Well, the book I enjoyed writing the most was Journey of the Pink Dolphins. I loved the research, which involved four expeditions to Peru and Brazil in the Amazon. And also on my last expedition had me swimming with wild pink dolphins, not a swim with dolphins program, but me just going out quarter mile into the blue waters of the Tapajos River. And seven dolphins would just come. They'd know I was there. And oh swim, my goodness. Which was pretty awesome. But I also loved writing that book. Sometimes you love the research and the writing for some reason is extremely difficult. You start to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fail my, my tremendous teachers. You know, I won't do this justice. And that's very scary. Probably the book that I am proudest of writing. Um, it might be The Good, Good Pig, or it might be this book, How to Be a Good Creature. Because so many people have written to me about those two books, helping them through difficult times. Mm. And both of those books were very hard to write. I don't like writing memoir particularly, and I certainly don't like writing about my own difficult times. Um, the the uh, How to Be a Good Creature uh, discusses, among other things, a, a point at which I was so despondent that um, I was considering ending my life and had what I believed to be perfectly good way of doing it. Um, and at the end of, of Good, Good Pig, that was a very hard book to write because, you know, pigs don't live as long as, as people do. And that was, that was really quite miserable to write. Yeah. But it's a joyous book because Chris's spirit not my writing, was what comes through and, and makes that book a book of comfort and joy. Ev, I, I actually saw some pigs the weekend after I wrote your book and I was, or read your book, not wrote it. Um, and I could not stop thinking about Christopher. I love that pig. Like I just wanted to walk over and go give him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, <laughs> which great. probably would not be good for his waistline, but that's okay. So I, I got to read that one next. That's, that's fantastic. Um, um, so yeah, let's talk about like the the process. Do you do you still kind of keep like a regular writing practice? And if so, what's sort of your, you know, what's a day in the life? Like how many hours a day do you work on writing right now? Well, the research and the writing are quite separate. Um, if I'm in the field, I keep a field journal essentially. Um, but I don't go to my computer and like start writing chapter one until I have finished all the research. 
and and I have everything kind of loaded into my head because yes. you don't know where's the most important to start important place to start. So um, and then there's periods uh, in a writer's life when, I, well, it, me anyway, when I'm not writing at all because I'm on the road promoting a book. And when you're doing a book tour, I, I find that just really antithetical to writing. It's a whole different thing when you're on and you're, you're meeting with your, your readers. So, you know, a typical day would vary very much depending on what I'm doing. A typical day of actually sitting down and writing a book. I mean, today, for example, I mean, um, until two o'clock when I had to take the first of, of three different calls having to do with different things. Um, I got up, actually, uh, normally I would be walking Thurber for an hour, but today is his daycare day, um, fed Howard and me breakfast, and I sit down at my desk and I, I write or try to write until lunch and then a couple hours after lunch, that's when you turn your attention to things like emails and phone calls and things like that. Um, so you find that like having it's it's sort of like a concentrated time. Yeah, I like yeah. I mean lots of people there's no one right way to do it of course. Right, right. I need a lot I I need to have that expanse of of a lot of time so that I'm not looking at the clock and not like having something you know wiggling in the back of my mind demanding attention. Um so who are your well okay another question on that topic. Um does writing do you feel like when you're done writing, you're energized or you're like, oh my goodness, I need a nap? I'm exhausted. I'm physically and mentally exhausted. But so I mean, I can still get up and, and I, I still force myself. I, I do three or four workouts a week. I've got to stay strong because a lot of my work entails, you know, physical, physical labor. So I'm, you know, physically able to if I if I need to swim for hours with pink dolphins at the drop of a hat I'm ready to do that yeah oh my gosh uh, that sounds like amazing I always say my spirit animal is a dolphin so oh, wow that's great that's I mean great. I don't really know what my spirit animal is but if I got to choose it would be that um so who are some of your favorite authors and and books to read well number one is the guy I married my, my husband, Howard Mansfield, is the best writer I've ever known. And he is my, you know, my first editor, really. Before I ever turn anything into uh, my editors at the publishing houses, he reads every single word. And he's also a, a, a tough critic. Um, we met in college on the Daily Newspaper. And one time, one of our editorial editors brought an editorial for Howard, the managing editor, to read. And Howard read it and then picked up my lighter, I smoked then, and set it on fire wordlessly. So, oh, you know. No. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, actually, that guy who's still our friend just said, you know what? I thought it needed work and went back and rewrote it. So, Howard writes about different things than I do. He's um, He writes about preservation. He writes about architecture. He writes about American history. He writes about the stories that New England has to have to tell us about America. And um, But he is the best writer I have ever known. And I am as proud of his books 
if not more, um, as I am of my own. And I think just being able to be his life partner as he writes these book, these books has been certainly as large a contribution to literature as my own body of work. He has a new book out coming out. Now, let's see, we're now in August, almost in September. So uh, beginning of October, and it's called Chasing Eden, a book of seekers about American seekers, starting with the Shakers. Okay, I wrote that all the way back to Native Americans. So since you're both, I guess, in the writing and publishing world, what is something about the publishing industry or the writing world that kind of bugs you or that you wish you could fix? Oh, boy. Well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. What's your unpopular opinion? Yeah. Well, one one of the things is how how authors um, don't even always get to title their own books. Most Mm. people don't know this. I have a book called Birdology, and I will go to my grave unhappy with that title. My original title for that book was Birds Are Made of Air, which I think was a very lyrical, memorable title. Birdology was the title of a a very fun sermon I happened to hear, and I think it's a great title for a sermon, but it wasn't a good title for that book. But basically, at gunpoint, I was forced to have this title, Hmm. and I will be unhappy about that. In, until uh, you know, I rise from the dead. So <laughs> that almost are, that almost yeah. seems like a search engine optimization kind of title. You know, like they were thinking, well, what are people going to type into Amazon? Yeah, well, I mean, I think birds are made of air. Automatically, birds is the first word. So yeah, I don't think that would have been bad. But uh, you know, the, a lot of times it's the marketing department or people that you never meet or never have anything to do with that decides on these things. Um, the same is true for um, the the pictures or art or lack thereof in your book. You don't have control over that as an author. Um, I did another book that, to my amazement, I, I was there were there were color pictures. There was an insert in that book, but there was not a single picture of a living human being in the book, even though I had plenty. Of pictures of the characters in the book. There was not one single one pictured in that book. And I was absolutely astonished, And but I could do nothing about it. Hmm. Um, Birdology, again, poor Birdology. It's a really, I think it was a really good book, but it had not one single color photograph. And it was all about birds who tend to be rather colorful. <laughs> so, you know, that that bugs me as as an author. But, I mean, obviously, I'm extremely grateful for the publishers who have published my my works. I've got 32, 31 or 32 books out right now. Um, I'm working with just dream editors right now who I adore. Many of the editors that I've worked with in the past, who, in fact, every one of them who's still alive is, is still a friend. Wow. So I've gotten to know some wonderful, wonderful people. And I'm just so grateful that, you know, publishers out there are are still interested in my work. Yeah. And I guess that, you know, there's pros and cons to the self-publishing or going through a publisher. So it's helpful for people to hear those things, I think, because it's true when you work with a publishing company, um, you give away some of those decisions. That's right. And this one, it's a beauty and one of the beauties of self-publishing. Right. The book will be exactly what you wanted. You will not be sent 
back to rewrite chapter three, or if you're a novelist to, you know, make the, the, the lead character a woman when they're a man or a white if they were black or, you know, whatever kind of weird pressures get put on you. So I guess uh, this is a great lead in to what do you think, what, what would your advice be for somebody that is an aspiring writer? Well, I just say, you know, write every day and, um, and get edited. Um, I have not always agreed with my editors, but frequently, you know, they do this professionally. They have good ideas. Mm-hmm. And the more editors that you're exposed to, the, the more experience you will get with uh, these professional people whose objective really is the same as your own to get your, uh, your book more readers or to get your work more readers. So just blogging isn't enough. Would you say that picking good editors is some of the best money that a writer can spend? Well, I don't pay my editors. They pay me. Yeah. Um, I, in, if, if you're being published by a publishing house, your editor is assigned, is assigned to you. Um, when you sell your, when you sell your book, um, if you have a literary agent, which I do, a wonderful literary agent, uh, they may take your book to auction, but usually you are allowed to talk to the editor who would be involved if that house bought your book and you want to get somebody who's simpatico, uh, that, and it's hard to tell with just, you know, a phone conversation or one single visit. Uh, but you can get an idea sort of of what their vision is um, for your book. My books get sold before they're written, unlike most novels, which are already there. So I'm really taking a big gamble. Right. They haven't already read my book. What they've read is a very detailed proposal. Wow. <laughs> Um, all right. So I have two more questions for you. And then I know you have to head off to go pick up Thurber. Yes. <laughs> how, how has being a writer built your confidence? Um, being, there's, there's, a, there's a cartoon on our refrigerator right now <laughs> that came from the New Yorker. And a friend of mine sent it to me. And it has a writer sitting up in the front of a bookstore and the written invitation next to his desk is fight the writer. <laughs> so what that's saying is if you're a writer and if hundreds of thousands of people are going to be reading what you write, uh, you're, you're going you're gonna to get people who write you heartwarming tales of how much you help them. And you're going to get some really mean things said about you. Yeah, I, I had uh, one person write me after Good Good Pig who wrote a very polite letter, but she th- thought it was very important that I know that because my father didn't believe in Jesus, that he would be um, suffering in hellfire forever. So, you know, people like that are going to read your stuff, too, and they may get in touch with you. And so what it's taught me, you know, who, Believe in your believe in your message. You may not think that you're the greatest writer in the world. There's days still after th- over thirty books that I feel like I'm still not worthy to write this story, hmm. but the story is worthy, and that's what I believe in. I love that perspective. Um, all right, so my last question 
this kind of is a perfect tie-in with what you just said about your dad. Do you view writing as a spiritual practice in any way? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think our life is a spiritual practice. You know, I, I, I think I bring my, not just my intellect, but my emotions, my intuition, and my understanding standing of God to everything I write, even if I don't write the name of God in any of, of my books. That's right. always part of who I am, and I bring all of who I am to everything I write. I love that. Well, this was fantastic. And I, and I just would love for to open the invitation for you to share, you know, how people can connect with you online and find your work to read for themselves oh great well i've got um i'm on social media i'm on facebook instagram and uh what's that other thing twitter and uh <laughs> my all of my books you can just google me and you will find them um and i would just be delighted for more people to meet my great teachers like christopher hogwood and Molly, Octavia the Octopus, and the emus, and all the others. I'm so glad that their spirits are out there still witnessing in the world. And I will make sure to include all of that info too for people to easily access. Thank you so much for joining me. This was wonderful. And I know I only just like touched the tip of the iceberg with all the questions that we could cover, but this was fantastic. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Emily. To learn more about She Built This and to join our community and get involved for yourself, visit www.shebuiltthis.org.